Hello, my name is Tom Boom. And I'm Joanna Bailey. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we've got for you this week. Today, Tom will see why Germany is Ryanair's biggest loser while I take a look at the latest data on aviation's recovery. I will chat about the importance of humidity in aircraft cabins, fascinating I know, <laughs> while Joe looks at United Airlines' new routes. Finally, Tom will fill us in on BA's points plane promotion. So now you know what's in store, let's get on with the show. And I wanted to talk about um, Germany and why it's Ryanair's biggest loser. Um, and this is quite an interesting story because, um, as we mentioned before, I was chatting to Michael O'Leary in late March about plenty of things. And um, one of the things I said was, I want to pick a bone with you about uh, leaving Frankfurt. Um, and, you know, I kind of asked um, about um, Frankfurt, the future, all of this, but in in actuality, we had a really fascinating chat about Germany as a whole. And um, Germany, you know, it was Ryanair's fourth biggest market in 2019 before COVID. So it's pretty significant in the scheme of things. It's since fallen to sixth place behind Ireland in 2022 and France in 2023. Um, and, you know, it's still a big market for the Irish low-cost carrier because it's got over 50,000 flights planned this year alone. Um, and it's one of only two countries, though, where uh, Ryanair's flying below 2019 levels. So I wanted to take a little bit of um, a look into that. And where does it start? Well, basically, um, I was chatting to uh, O'Leary and he said, we've added capacity at Dusseldorf Faser, we've added capacity at Hahn and some other airports in Germany. But frankly, Germany at the moment is a market that's not particularly aggressive or growing for us. We'll grow much more dramatically in Italy, Spain, Portugal, Greece and Poland. But the, uh, Germany is a market in which we've seen the weakest traffic recovery. So, you know, I wanted to look into the numbers and sure enough, that is the case. So, um, you look at somebody like Italy, who was mentioned by um, Ryanair, they've got 85,000 more flights in 2023 than they had in 2019. That's an increase of 35.77%. Um, Spain increased 26%. Ireland increased 26% again. France, a 35% increase like Italy. So then you get to Germany, who's in sixth place in the total number of flights scheduled this year. And they're still down 7,156 flights um, from 2019, which is a 14.18% decrease. Um, and this is, I must uh, add a little footnote here. This is based on 2023's flight schedules so far. And obviously, December is over half a year away and a lot can change then. So um, this is the current picture. Um, but, you know, I kept digging and kept digging and I found that Ryanair isn't alone in um, seeing a poor recovery in Germany. And of the country's top 20 airlines, 12 are still operating at uh, lower than 2019 levels in the country. Um, so when combined, the top 20 airlines are down 200,000 flights in Germany compared to 2019. Lufthansa, Eurowings and EasyJet are offering vastly reduced schedules. Um, and in fact, EasyJet is the biggest loser of these top 20 in Germany. In uh, 2019, it was in fourth place just ahead of Ryanair, uh, just behind Ryanair, sorry. 
Now, in 2023, it's dropped to ninth place on the list, and it's 43,600 flights short of its 2019 numbers, which is not in- insignificant. Um, r- rival Wizz Air, you know, they've actually managed to grow in Germany. They've got 8.13 more percent flights, but they seem to be growing everywhere, so I don't read too much into that. But um if you dig into it even further, and I will wrap it up shortly, but Germany is actually the biggest loser in Europe as a whole uh, when you compare it to its neighbours. So current schedule data shows that Germany is going to be down 720,000 departures across the entire year. And that's, um, sorry, they're going to have 7,020 to- uh, total departures, which is down 2,247,000 uh, on 2019. So a, a drop of 25%. Um and it's it's not the only one that's seen seen a drop. Um, of the thirty nations um, that I looked at, just uh, ten are expecting to see an increase. Um, but you know, Germany is uh, the second place was the UK, and the the deficit of flights was less than half that of Germany. So it really shows how much Germany is losing out. But it seems like not all hope is lost because um, O'Leary did mention that in the future, he thinks that German airports will realise in a year or two that having a national champion like Lufthansa that overcharges everybody is not necessarily the way forward. And there'll be more scope for Ryanair to do deals with airports and to grow, but it will take a year or two. Um, But I just found this really fascinating because it's not something that you kind of hear about is this huge... You, you, you. I, I know you published a piece this week, and I think you're going to talk about that next. Mm. Saying, um, do we still need to even be talking about aviation's recovery? Well, my answer is yes, because we're not fully recovered, at least <laughs> over here. Um, but I won't won't steal your thunder on that story. <laughs> It seems like Germany is a really difficult market. And I don't know why, because Germans love to travel, um, yeah. you know, and they've got money to spend. But I know Wizz Air pulled out of Frankfurt, what was it, two years, three years ago yeah, now? Yeah, so that's an interesting one, because EasyJet actually was also there as well. And Wizz Air and EasyJet pulled out at the same time, because um, I believe, uh, you know, Ryanair mentioned they had a five-year deal on uh, costs. And mm. I believe... Wiz and EasyJet also got this um, this deal or a similar one, and this expired in I think it was uh, early 2020. So those two pulled out then because they were no longer getting the cheaper rates, mm. um, which was a shame. But then we still had Ryanair for a bit, but now they've left as well. So you know, if you're listening to to this O'Leary, please come back. Like I asked you, <laughs> <laughs> do you have any low cost options? I suppose you've got the um, um, Eurowings well, and things. But, Corundon. Um, Corundon and Pegasus, I think, uh, but they're not so sort of mainstream low cost. They're more holiday destination low cost or yeah. in Pegasus example, Turkey. Not great for going to conferences and such like yeah, <laughs> in exactly, other cities. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting because um, James Pearson published a piece just a couple of weeks ago on um, EasyJet in Germany and mm. they're actually flying their lowest capacity for many years um, so and essentially they're flying about 72% less this summer than they were pre-pandemic. So, yeah. you know, really and pulling back from German markets. You know, when I was at the launch of the new Berlin airport in um, 2022, uh, 2020, sorry, right at the height of COVID, um, 
you know, Johan was saying, oh, this is like Berlin is going to become a big hub of EasyJet. Mm. Uh, you know, they're going to have all the maintenance there. It's going to be basically like a European London Luton. Crazy. Uh, but then you look and you don't see it materialising. Well, according to James, apparently they fly more into Belfast than they do into Berlin. So yeah, <laughs> that, that doesn't surprise something. me. Yeah, mm. yeah. So as Tom mentioned, I wanted to just have a look at the numbers behind the recovery because, you know, we've been talking about recovery basically since we started flying again in late 2020. Um, And of course, air travel has been picking up rapidly over the last couple of years. Um, The West lifted most restrictions before the end of last year. And then February this year, of course, China removed all of its COVID controls for travel. Japan is set to remove the last of its border controls on May the 8th. So it's kind of signaling that Asia is unlocked and ready to get back to business as usual. Um, And we're seeing that reflected in what airlines are doing. You know, there's lots of carriers restarting abandoned routes, launching new services and adding capacity back into their international markets. According to reports, planes are flying with very good load factors. You know, they're full. Passenger confidence is very high. So does that mean we can stop talking about the recovery now? Are we recovered? Um, Well, I had a chat last week with Steve Solomon, who's the chief commercial officer at ARC, um, to investigate just how recovered the industry is. So if you haven't heard of them, ARC stands for Airlines Reporting Corp. And these guys work with travel agencies, airlines, many other stakeholders. Um, And part of what they do is to provide settlement and reconciliation of US agency ticketing. So, So they've got a unique insight into where people are actually booking to fly and when. So, you know, if you want to see where a plane is, you go to Flight Radar. If you want to know what routes have been planned, you might look at Sirium or OAG. If you want to know how many tickets have actually been sold, ARC are the people to look into it for you. So I found it really interesting to chat to him. Um, To put it into context, he said the magic number for them is $8 billion a month. So pre-pandemic, $8 billion a month of ticket sales was good. Last year in May, sales did exceed $8 billion, and that was the first time it had happened since the kind of start of 2020. And then for this year, both January and February were $8.4 billion in ticket sales. So well above that $4 billion number, which does signal a strong recovery. Um, Another sign that I thought was quite interesting is the increased booking window. So this is the amount of time that you book your tickets before you actually Mm. intend to fly. So in summer 2021, they hit a low of 15 days. So most people were leaving it right until the last minute to book their flights. Pre-pandemic, we were averaging about 45, 46 days pre-travel to book the tickets. Um, And Steve said that we've already returned to that booking window for point-of-sale flights from the US. Um, So he kind of looks more at the US flights. He did look at the global flights and said there's still a little way to go to get back to that kind of standard booking window. Um, But why is the booking window important? Well, it's kind of a measure of consumer confidence, if you like. Mm. So, you know, the more people feel like the flight will actually go ahead, the more likely they feel that they won't need to cancel for some reason, the more um, in advance they're going to book their tickets. So so that's good. There are still some areas where a full return to normality is still a bit away. Asia is still on the upswing. Of course, you know, they've only really come back into the mix in the last couple of months. Corporate Mm. travel as well is only sitting at around 80% of 2019 levels. So still some way to go. 
Um, and it's kind of, you know, it's it's out for the jury or the jury's out, should I say, on whether it will come back to 100%. Because I think people have changed their mindsets about things like Zoom and stuff. And maybe mm. there just won't be as much corporate travel as there was before. But we'll see. Nevertheless, Steve was very positive about the overall outlook for aviation. He noted, you know, some of the record orders for new planes from both US and international airlines, which is an incredibly positive sign. Um, and he also noted the high demand for travel as people, you know, want to get back to meeting in person and visiting new places. Um, so as to whether the recovery was complete, I think he put it better than me when he said, I think the answer is, it depends on who you are and from what perspective you're assessing things. Um, so from Germany, looking at Ryanair, it's a no. But from many other points of view, um, it could be a yes. Um, mm. And I just wanted to share some information that Ark sent me today, um, because for this summer, bookings from the USA to European destinations are higher than they've seen for a very long time. Um, so they were looking at the top 10 European destinations. Uh, the very top one is Rome, which is up 82% year on year. London, of course, is popular. Paris, Athens, Barcelona. Istanbul is actually up 183% year over year. So popular place to go. Uh, Dublin, Amsterdam, Madrid and Keflavik have also seen significant growth. Um, but, you know, a bit of a public service announcement if you are in the US and planning to travel maybe to Europe or somewhere else this summer. Um, the weekly applications for passports in the US um, are about 30 to 40% above last year. And some passengers are waiting 10 to 13 weeks for the processing of a routine passport application. First time passport applications can take much longer. So if you Is are planning like to travel... just like being in the UK then? Well, yes, pretty much. <laughs> if you are planning to travel and haven't got a current passport, I recommend getting it sorted ASAP if you want to mm. go this summer. I mean... My advice would always be, even if you're not planning to travel, just make sure you've got an, in, a, a valid passport. And then when something does come up, it's there. Yeah, exactly. A lot of destinations as well are asking for at least six months validity. So I think you mm. can start applying for the new one once you've got less than a year on it. And it's well worth mm. doing in plenty of time. Um, if you want to hear more from Steve, there's a full interview on our YouTube channel. He's a really interesting guy. I absolutely love talking to him. Um, but what I'm looking forward to even more than that is next Wednesday at two o'clock London time, I will be chatting to Rob Dewar, who is mm. um, a senior vice president at Airbus Canada and is well known as the father of the A220, one of our favourite planes. So do tune in for that one. And uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you there. Mm. Well, you know, the A220 is uh, quite a short-haul aircraft, but I wanted to segue into long-haul flights okay. um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, talk about a bit more about comfort. And, you know, when you think about comfort on a flight, you're initially thinking, you know, seat quality, perhaps the onboard service, but you're not necessarily thinking about the atmospheric conditions inside an aircraft, unless it's you, because I know you're <laughs> on your overhead vents uh, rampage. Yes. But, um, yeah. <laughs> My one-woman um, mission to install gaspers <laughs> in all aircraft everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, such qualities as humidity and temperature, then they don't only impact the quality of a flight experience, but also actually affect the health and well-being during and after the flight. So, you know, I wanted to dive a bit more into this topic um, because when I was at Airbus uh, three weeks ago at the Red Cabin Aircraft Cabin Interior uh, Summit, you know, um, 
the I mentioned him on the podcast a few weeks ago, Ola Hagf, uh, Hagfeld, who's uh, working at CTT Systems, gave a speech on humidity and why it's important in cabin pressure. So, you know, according to Hagfeld, the flight deck, first class and business class cabins are drier than any place on earth with an average cabin humidity of two to three percent, five percent and seven percent respectively. Um, you know, and low humidity, okay, is great for metal aircraft because um, water corrodes metal and when there's no water in the air, it doesn't corrode. But um, it's not so great for humans that are breathing in all this air. So why is that? Well, firstly, you get quite dehydrated as passenger or crew um, on these long flights, but uh, also your sinuses and mucous membranes will dehydrate and start to dry out. And these really play a crucial role in protecting against airborne diseases such as colds, viruses, um, you know, and when they've dried out, their effectiveness is vastly reduced. Um, it's not such a problem on the on the plane because you know the air is constantly being refreshed um, and all of this nasty stuff we're being told is being sucked out. But you know, as soon as you get off the plane, you know your defenses don't instantly spring back, but you're suddenly mixing with all of these individuals in the airports, standing in passport queues, um, and you know it, it's not. Uh, you know, individuals can get sick after long haul flights because of this. And I'm pretty sure when I got back from Dubai, I was feeling a bit uh, for um, a week or two. And I reckon that was because of this. Um, but, you know, this is where mushrooms enter the equation. This oh. is something I never thought I would say on the <laughs> podcast. But, um, you know, um, Hagfeld really had some um, evidence to back this up. So he did the best scientific experiment on an airplane I've ever seen. And he decided that he was going to take fresh mushrooms and a humidity measuring device on a business class flight from Stockholm to Chicago. Um, I reckon this was an SAS Airbus A330 because I looked at um, what aircraft served that route, but that's not confirmed. Um, but, you know, just after takeoff, he measured the humidity at 40.8%. Um, temperature was 22 degrees and the mushrooms appeared firm yet fresh um, and uh, there was Joe and I had a lot of discussion about how you describe <laughs> fresh mushrooms uh, Tom just wanted for this to piece. describe them as perky I don't know um, <laughs> anyway I'm not sure a mushroom can be perky but I'll leave that to our listeners to decide <laughs> <laughs> Um, three hours into the flight, the cabin's humidity had dropped to 6.7% and the temperature had risen to 23.8 uh, degrees C. The mushrooms started to shrink, but by the time the flight landed in Chicago O'Hare, the mushrooms had a hard shell, they'd shrunk significantly in size and they had deep wrinkles, starkly contrasting to the departure um, photos. And you know, it's it really shows because you don't feel it so much as a living human being on a plane but when you look at the mushrooms it really does illustrate it quite well but you know fortunately for passengers composite fuselages are uh, becoming a little bit more the norm they're less susceptible to corrosion and as such aircraft such as the 350 the 787 and the coming one day soon hopefully Boeing 777X are compatible with onboard humidifiers either in the crew areas or the entire cabin and these technologies can increase humidity from 3 to 8% to 22% and also reduce contaminants in the air we're breathing on the flight. So, um, you know, it's bad, but it could get better, is my sort of two-second summary of that story. But, um, you know, I just had to mention it in more detail because I was fascinated by the mushrooms. <laughs> 
I think that's two podcasts in a row we've talked about mushrooms. I don't know what's going on with you, Tom. <laughs> I seem to remember some fun guys on the last po- podcast. Anyway, that's a real dad joke, so I will move on quickly. Um, Quicker than quickly, please. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit about United Airlines, um, one of uh, one of many US carriers that... I have flown, um, but I haven't flown enough of them yet. Anyway, United sent us a press release yesterday on their largest South Pacific expansion in aviation. And the timing was interesting, but I'll come back to that in a minute. So we'll talk about the announcement first. Um, So, you know, it's interesting that I was talking about the recovery because Australia was one of the last places to unlock or the sort of westernised places to unlock anyway. Um, But now they're really bouncing back. So United has added a bunch of flights down under for the winter or northern hemisphere winter australia's summer do you know what i mean um and the expansion includes the first non-stop flight between san francisco and christchurch which will make united the only carrier to directly connect the u.s to the south island of new zealand so it's going to be flying the christchurch route three times a week with the boeing 7878 um and it's part of its broader expansion efforts in new zealand Um, which will be next winter making United about 70% larger in New Zealand than it was in 2019. So also next winter, United will be adding four weekly flights to Auckland from Los Angeles. It's currently the only US carrier that serves Auckland year-round with its existing service from San Francisco. Um, but it's going to be adding Los Angeles to Auckland with the 7879 starting October 28th. And it's not just New Zealand that's getting the love. There's lots of new Australia services too. Um, because in winter last year, United became the only airline offering direct flights between Brisbane and San Francisco. From November the 29th this year, United will add to this service by adding three weekly Los Angeles to Brisbane flights on a 7879 Dreamliner. That makes it the largest carrier between the US and Brisbane, which is exciting for United. And it's also going to increase its flying from San Francisco to Brisbane and to Sydney. Um, So starting October 28th, daily flights between San Francisco and Brisbane will be operated on the 7879 Dreamliner. And it's going to be flying nearly triple the number of passengers from Brisbane to the US next winter than it did in 2022. It's also going to be flying twice daily between San Francisco and Sydney on the 777-300ER. That's more flights to Sydney from the US than any other carrier. Uh, so you get where they're going with this. We're big. <laughs> We're mm. big down under. Yeah. Um, and finally, last winter, United became the largest airline operating flights from the US to Melbourne um, when it increased from 10 to 14 weekly round-trip flights with one daily from both San Francisco and Los Angeles. Now, starting this October, October 28th, United's going to be deploying its biggest aircraft between San Francisco and Melbourne, of course, the 777-300ER, which will add nearly 100 daily seats to each departure. So compared with winter 2019, which is our pre-pandemic benchmark, if we're still doing that, United's going to be offering 65% more seats to Melbourne. Um, So overall, there's going to be 66 flights between the US and Australia and New Zealand every week. Um, That's nearly 40% more flights from the US to Australia and New Zealand next northern winter versus last year. So exciting. Um, It's going to be serving more destinations in Australia and New Zealand than all the other US airlines combined. I mean, that is a nice positive announcement. Really good to see. Obviously, betting very big on the down under traffic. But I said the timing was interesting because it was because as we were 
publishing this story about all the happy news of the expansion, their financial results hit and the report for the first quarter, where it recorded quite a sizable net loss. Um, the first quarter loss was $194 million. And this was despite a 51.1% uptick in revenues compared with the same time last year. Um, so the revenue overall was $11.4 billion. Uh, but the results were hit by higher costs, particularly on the salaries and for the jet fuel. Um, and actually, you know, although it was a loss, the loss was a little bit smaller than Wall Street expected. Um, and executives were very bullish on the rest of the year. They said they're going to be profitable in Q2 um, and particularly noted the strong demand for international travel, which I'm sure they're hoping is going to fill up all these planes that are heading down under for the winter. I mean, good for them for going there, though. <laughs> uh, it's It surprises me that there's not already so many connections. Yeah, but hey, it does. Um, but talking about Down Under, uh, you you may know that Qantas for a while has been operating its points planes flights where um, tickets are only available to frequent flyers mm -hmm. uh, by using mileage. Well, now um, One World Partner British Airways is getting in on the points plane craze uh, because it revealed that it's going to begin selling select flights where tickets can only be purchased by frequent flyers using Avios. Um, so, you know, while many think that buying flight tickets using cash is the only way to do it, it's not. And most airlines with a frequent flyer scheme will allow you to use uh, to accure points, which you can later redeem for future flights. So it's a concept similar to, you know, your punch card at the coffee shop, except, um, you know, because flights are very different, like a coffee is a coffee, whereas all the flights are different in length and class, the points differ. Um, but yeah, so British Airways is now offering a selection of flights that can only be booked um, with air miles. Um, the first flight is actually going to be the inaugural Euroflyer London Gatwick to Sharm El Sheikh service on November 3rd. And I thought this was kind of an interesting one because um, the points plane program, you know, one of those was uh, say goodbye to the 747. And now um, British Airways is doing that for an inaugural flight. Um, that's November 3rd. And then the second wave is already planned for early 2024. And this is going to be uh, four weeks in a row from London Heathrow to Geneva with return flights a week after. Um, so, you know, how much does it cost to book one of these flights um, in return? Um, well, I did a little bit of a look because they don't just say it's not just this this is how much you pay in avios you know you have to spend at least one pound on each of the flights um but there are several different tiers that you can buy the flight at so you could uh, if you paid one pound for an economy return to Sharm el sheikh that would set you back twenty seven thousand five hundred avios um, but if you were prepared to say uh, spend £35, that drops to 18,500 Avios, so 9,000 Avios less. Um, it's quite interesting because I looked over on the website of our friends at Head for Points and they value a Avios at roughly 0.1 pence, uh, 0.1 pound, um, one penny. <laughs> um, that's the yeah. one we wanted. <laughs> Got you. Um, so as such, you know, if you're looking at the Sharm El Sheikh if you give each Avios a, a one penny value, then if you look at Sharm El Sheikh, it's actually best value to spend £121 in economy and then £8,500 Avios or £141 in business with £19,500. Uh, and this is sort of the most money and least avios that you can spend. Um, but that's not the case if you're going to Geneva, because um, the most money you could spend in an economy is £85, but it actually works out best to spend £35 uh, and then use 
1,500 avios, and in business, um, you go down one level to 85 pound, and that's the best the best value. Um, if you're struggling to picture what I'm trying to explain, I think it's best to go on the Simple Flying website and look at our article on this story because the the chart really shows it a lot better than I can put into words. Um, but you know, it's it's interesting because um, you know Qantas has done this now. BA is going to do this. Who's going to be next? Mm. Um, well, Ryanair don't have a point scheme, so... <laughs> yeah, well, they. I'm still fighting to get them to launch this frequent flyer scheme that is still mentioned on their website, <laughs> even though I've been told that they never launched a frequent flyer scheme and it was just an offhand comment. <laughs> um, but that's a whole other kettle of fish. I think Virgin Atlantic should do something cool. I've got quite a few flying mm. club points that are just languishing because they're not quite enough for anything good, but you don't want to fritter yeah. it away on anything not good because they're, you know quite valuable anyway bloody mm. blah, blah um i think that's all we've got time for on today's podcast we hope you enjoyed it and we welcome any feedback at editorial at simpleflying.com for more great content you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media simply search for simple flying if you enjoyed the podcast please do leave us a rating on your favorite podcast player thanks for listening bye